peace of the Lord be with you. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you know that this is a strange summer for us. It's been a year that's hard to decipher, decipher? hard to figure out. And we're confused about what the future holds. We're wondering how long. And what about our children going back to school? What about the elections that are coming up in a few months? And however those turn out, what will, will that spell for the remainder of the year and next year? So many questions, so many concerns right now, so many anxious hearts. Well, if we could collect all the anxiety in the United States today, we could use it to fuel 20 ships to the space station and back. This morning we turn our eyes toward you, God. In faith we reach out to you. You've come to us in Jesus Christ, shown us your love, shown us your beauty, shown us your goodness. You have shown us the gentle way that you treat us and what great mercy you have for us in forgiving us and receiving us to yourself. Embrace us today wherever we are in this moment and be to us the Father that we've always needed, uh, always wanted, and, and never knew that we actually had. Be to us today love and help and strength and may we be to others everything that you are to us in our limited human way. Now bless the scriptures to us. We want to learn, we want to become wiser and more understanding, but we also want a greater experience, God, of what we come across in scripture that, that speaks to us. So may that be ours today also, through Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going back to chapter 10, and beginning in verse 19, we have come to what is, for me, the climax of the book of Hebrews. I mean, we are here now. X marks the spot. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said, the whole letter has been about Jesus and about who we are as a result of who he is and what he has done. Now, I hope it didn't take me quoting a New Testament scholar for you to finally believe me. That's what Hebrews is all about. It's about Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. Now, there's no point of reading or studying the book of Hebrews if we don't get this that we read today. If we cannot put hands and feet on this, then we've just wasted our time. I mean, this is 21 weeks of wasted time. If you and I don't intend to incorporate into our everyday lived experience today's message from Hebrews. So, in Scripture, God created everything. 
for his pleasure. And in particular, he created the man and the woman for himself. God revealed himself to them. They knew him and they interacted with him. There, there was a closeness there. We're told that God came to the Garden of Eden to walk in the cool of the day or, or in the early evening. It's a beautiful picture of God strolling through his garden and looking for his companions, Adam and Eve. When they chose something other than God, he banished them. And the entrance to the garden, the way back to God, was blocked. And God posted angelic guards at the entrance so they could not get back in. This is the world we were born into, the world outside the garden. So we can look at nature, the natural world, and we can draw conclusions about God, and I'm sure many of them would be accurate. Some would be uh, off kilter, and some would simply be wrong. But knowing about God, saying, well, I know something about the Creator as I look at His creation, it's not the same as knowing God. We may know something about an artist through looking at a piece that he or she have painted, but it doesn't really help us know the artist. We still belong to God. We're still made for Him. Um, he, he didn't throw us away. The problem is we don't know Him. So God came close to a people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He lived among them. But He did not live among them the way the first man and woman, the way, the way He lived with Adam and Eve. Uh, Eden was no longer a garden. It was now a chamber in the sanctuary, an inner chamber where no one could go. And that, that entrance into that chamber was also blocked by angelic guards. That sacred space never contained God. It was just a place for him to manifest his presence among his people so that they would know he was near. The space of God's actual existence, the, the space where he's fully manifest, is transcendent. It is beyond our four-dimensional universe. If we had a means of perceiving other dimensions than the four dimensions in which we live, it might be possible we could see God. But our senses are adapted to our universe. That's what we see. That's what we experience. The writer has been explaining that the, the realm where God exists, his dimension, is where Jesus went after his death and his resurrection. 
And now we've reached the conclusion of those statements he had to make about Jesus in that ultimate sacred space in heaven. We have come this morning to what the writer of Hebrews has been wanting to tell us. So, verse 19 says of chapter 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us <laughs> stop right there. Um, two introductory statements are made here. They both begin in our translation with, since we have. Oh, I just, I just love that possessive, uh, what, what, what is it, a verb? Have, uh, mine. One of the first words I ever learned to say. Uh, to, to own something, to possess something, has a meaning, especially in, in our culture. The writer says, look at what we have. First, we have confidence to enter the holy place. This is crazy. I mean, we're not qualified at all to go into the holy of holies where only the high priest could go. I mean, if we were priests, that would be one thing. We're not even priests. We're not even allowed in the holy place. And here we find we have confidence to enter the holy places. And, and he's not talking about a building on earth. He's talking about heaven itself. Earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 3, the writer said, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's very important, because there he told us that Jesus was a priest, and that through him, we have this boldness, this confidence. We can strut right in there um, up to that throne of grace. <sighs> I, to me, this is just fantastic. I can pray, and I learned to pray guilt-loaded prayers. They always began with, Father, forgive me. Um, I've sinned again. Um, I said a bad word, I thought a bad thought, um, I took something that wasn't mine, uh, or, or I would make stuff up because I knew I was supposed to feel guilty, so, um, you know, nothing like murder or anything, bank robbery, but, you know, just uh, whatever came to me. But now, this whole idea that you and I can go with confidence. Confidence in what? That, that God's going to accept us, that God's going to let us come close. We get into these places we don't belong by grace and mercy. We can approach the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy. So this is what Jesus has made possible, this confidence. We're at a point 
where we can't be shy or tentative. If if we're shy, if we oh I don't know if I if I would do this if we're tentative, um, will I really be accepted? We're not going to get there. We have to be determined, and I'll tell you why. Because still in this universe, God does not appear to us. It's very rare that anyone hears God speak in an audible voice, or they see God with vision. It's very rare that he opens up the heaven and allows something to be seen uh, of heaven's glory in our world. So we have to be committed. We have to be consistent and self-disciplined. We have to we have to push through these potential obstacles that will tell us you're not getting anywhere with God. No, we're not qualified to be here, but Jesus has qualified us. That's what's been building to this point. Now the word the Greek word for enter can refer to the entrance to a place or to the act of entering. And we do not make this, this entrance physically. Just as the writer has said, the holy places Jesus entered were not of this earth. They were um, not of this world. They were not made by hand. You know, this is, this is God's dwelling place where he is. And this prayer takes us where we go in spirit. In spirit we approach God. Our bodies are still right here with all the normal sensations of temperature, humidity, sight, sound, uh, texture, so on. But in prayer, we move beyond our realm. Our prayers transcend to the transcendent God. We need to understand that this is real. Your, your brain will come up with a thousand reasons to, to convince you Prayer is not getting you anywhere. Prayer is not going anywhere. There's no one on the other end of the line. But it doesn't matter what you see or don't see. It doesn't matter what you hear or don't hear. It does not matter what you feel or do not feel. You are as close to God as Adam and Eve. And I think perhaps closer because it seems that there were times when God's presence was absent from their consciousness. It does not ever have to be like that for us. The writer explains to us next how this entrance was opened for us, and it was by the blood of Jesus. And we've seen that the most powerful sacrifice to ever be offered was on the cross. On the Day of Atonement, Israel's holiest day, the high priest would take blood into 
the Holy of Holies. And there he would purify the people, himself, the sacred tent, the sanctuary, and everything in it. Well, Jesus has opened a new and the living way for us. In chapter 9, verse 8, we, we read that all the activity that goes on in the sanctuary, whether it was the tent or the temple, um, revealed that the way into the holy places wasn't opened yet. Now that way is open. There were at least two barriers you had to pass through to get to the most holy place. And no one who was not a priest could pass through either one of those barriers. Only a high priest could pass through both. The way wasn't open, but now it's open. It's a new way, and it's the living way. Old Testament worship was formed by the law of Moses. Law is static. Law doesn't change. Now, there can be new interpretations or new adaptations of the law, but the law itself does not change. Thou shalt not steal is always there. It's always going to be a prohibition of taking what does not belong to you but belongs to someone else. The law is static. And worship, according to the law, was also static. The same sacrifices were repeated again and again. But the way that Jesus walks us into God's presence is dynamic. It's new and living. Oh, well, we've seen the living word of God. We've seen the living God. Uh, lots of things come to life in the book of Hebrews. He has opened this way through the curtain. Try to visualize the curtain in God's sanctuary. In the wilderness, it was 15 feet wide and 15 feet tall. And if you're in the holy place where that curtain hangs, that tent, you're in a dark room. It's just seven lamps are burning from one lampstand. And there is this sense of reverence, perhaps awe, you see, the curtain is a barrier, but it's, it's not made of concrete. It's not an iron curtain. It's made of fabric. And God is just on the other side of that curtain. God and his priest shared a common curtain. Gone on one side, the priest on the other. During the Vietnam conflict, there were prisoners of war, American prisoners of war, who were in cells, and they were not allowed to speak or call out to each other. But they learned to send messages to each other by tapping on the wall, uh, on the floor, on a pipe, on whatever would carry sound. And by typing out the Morse code, they were able to communicate. This kind of communication among comrades is so important. And this kind of communication with God is so important. And 
and for a long time all it was was the curtain and uh, you, you can't really make a, a good tap on a curtain but think of Israel today where is Israel's most holy place today it's a huge stone wall that's as close as they can come to the temple that was once there that's as close as they can come to the most holy place of the temple they approach they approach God in prayer and they come to a wall before the wall it was a fabric curtain so the curtain in the temple both separated the people from God and connected them because they shared the same curtain and that's what Jesus did in his incarnation in his curtain of flesh that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself but that curtain of his flesh was finally taken down on the cross there was a moment at his transfiguration where the curtain must have become translucent or something because the glory of God was shining through the person of Jesus not in its fullness the curtain was still there but it was uh, permeable or something this word for the curtain is used in each one of the three synoptic Gospels Matthew Mark and Luke and uh, there it refers to the curtain in the temple and the reference specifically is when Jesus was crucified there are several phenomenon phenomena that occurred and one of them is that that curtain in the temple was ripped and they specify from the top to the bottom I mean it's like God took it and said we don't need this anymore and now anyone who was in the holy place would have seen the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place they would have seen what no one was supposed to see I mean since the three synoptics mentioned that it, it's obvious that they saw a significance to that they don't spell out that significance but the writer of Hebrews does and he uses that same word for curtain and these are the only times that words used in the New Testament it's used in the synoptics and it appears twice in Hebrews uh, chapter 6 once and then now here and it's it's the same Greek word it's also in the Old Testament in the Greek translation of the Old Testament which we call the Septuagint it appears there in the book of Exodus chapter 26 verse 31 same word same curtain that curtain then in the temple is Jesus flesh embroidered into that curtain were angelic guards the angelic guards that blocked entrance to God's presence and when that curtain was torn those angelic guards were dismissed Jesus gets us past the guards into God's presence in Genesis 
it says not only were there angelic guards at the entrance to the garden, but there was a flaming sword that moved every which way. So if you're standing there and you think this is a video game and you're timing that sword when it goes back on its backswing and you think you're going to run through there, um, chances are slim that you'll make it. Uh, that flaming sword's going to get you. But in a sense, it, it's almost as if Jesus said, I can get you back to God. And he doesn't try to dodge the sword. He steps right in its path and he's, he's pierced and lacerated and punctured and he bleeds and the veil is torn and the sword is sated and it no longer flames and flashes. It's laid down and the guards step back and we pass through. So first, we have confidence to enter. And second, we have a great priest over the house of God. Back in chapter 3, we saw that Moses was a servant in the house of God and Jesus a son over the house of God. I don't mean to be disrespectful or trivial when I say, it's like Jesus has given us a backstage pass. It's like he, he, he comes to us and says, do you want to see the really awesome thing? Do you want to see the, the really sacred things? Do you, want, do you want to see God? I can get you there. The high priest wore an apron, let's call it an apron, that had two clasps at the top of it to hold it to the priest's garments and the clasps were on each shoulder and had a, a gem embedded in them and on one gem the names of six of the tribes was engraved and on the other gem the name of the six tribes the names were engraved so I want you to get a picture of this, these two gems on the, on the high priest's shoulders, half of Israel here, the other half of Israel here. He also wore a covering over his chest called the breast piece, and it had 12 gems in it. And each one had engraved the name of one of the tribes of Israel. Okay, God called this out. He, he wanted these garments with two gemstones on the priest's shoulders and 12 over the priest's chest. And God explains it. He says, And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. The priest brought Israel into God's presence symbolically. These gemstones were not the people. They weren't individuals. They were tribes, large tribes. And they're all represented there before God. But it's the priest who brings them in on his shoulder, 
The shoulder uh, usually refers to carrying burdens over his chest, over his heart. That's easy to understand. The priest took Israel into God's presence with him, carried them into his presence on his shoulders, taking the burden of them, having them on his heart, representing them to God symbolically. Jesus has done this for real. In the true sanctuary, God's very transcendent sanctuary, and carrying the burden on the shoulder and carrying us in his heart for real. Listen, in prayer, we are shrouded in transcendence. If you can imagine that when you pray, that as soon as you turn towards God, there's this holy presence all around you. It doesn't belong to this universe, it's, but it's there. You're in the most holy place. Perhaps even now, as you're listening to Hebrews and to me talk about it, you have this sense of, well, there's more than meets the eye. There's always more. And that more is here now. And perhaps you can sense around you this, this transcendence, transcendent presence of God. I'll tell you, sometimes it can come so close it gets scary. But that's all right. That's, that's still good. All right, now we can go on to verse 22. We know what we have now. We have confidence and we have a great priest. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How much time do we have? Yeah, okay, we're good. Based on what we have, there are three things for us to do. Let us draw near. That's first. These two words for me, draw near, tell the whole story. Sum up the whole message of Hebrews. Draw near. Don't stand far away. Don't live outside the circle. Draw near. Come in close. G. Campbell Morgan, a, a great old expository preacher of the last century, divides this passage into privileges and responsibilities. Verses 19 through 21, the privileges, and verses 22 through 25, the responsibilities. He says, privilege is only powerful as it is practiced. It is not enough to know this. We must enter. We must draw near. And here's what we bring with us to the entrance. We bring a true heart. This is the true sanctuary. The, the heavenly one. So the true heart is, um, is our best heart. It, 
It's the one that holds its treasures in heaven. Remember what Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth that can be lost through theft or corrosion. Lay up treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. This heart is true, it's genuine and it's pure. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We come with a true heart. We come with full assurance of faith. Way back in chapter 3, Israel did not enter God's rest because of their unbelieving hearts. So there's two strikes again against them. Their hearts were hard and they were unbelieving. And now he says, when we come, our hearts need to be true and we need to come with full assurance of faith. Look, we don't construct faith. I mean, if, if someone gives you, you know, the five steps to full assurance of faith, um, I wouldn't trust them because it's not something that we construct. It's not make-believe. Rather, we come to God for faith. Many of us cannot come to a full assurance of faith on our own. So we come to God for faith and we trust Him to give us faith. And each time we do this and then proceed in faith, okay, Lord, I asked for your help, and however this turns out, I'm going to accept as your will. And um, the more we do this and act on faith, it's cumulative. You know what I mean? The faith grows. It builds on itself until one day we come to trust. And when you have perfect trust, you have the full assurance of faith. Then our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, I've said before that, that conscience is one way we can translate the Greek word, but if, if all we're thinking of is an awareness of right and wrong, that's too limiting, especially for this passage. So let's go with consciousness. We have a consciousness that's been sprinkled clean, and that's the beauty of what Jesus does for us that no priest of Israel could ever do for the people because everything they did worked only on the outside. Jesus' blood and, and pure water works on the inside. So imagine that, a consciousness in which there's no guilt because all of that's been washed away. There's no animosity towards others. There's no anxiety because all that is evil, that which can mean morally bad, but it also means troubling, you know, calamity, a bad thing that happens. Um, those evils too, they're, they're just, they just don't hold a place in our consciousness anymore because God's going to take care of us. He's going to take care of us all the way to death. And even then, He won't stop taking care of us. So our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, these are metaphors. Please appreciate that. Um, though I don't mind when I'm taking a shower to think of God cleaning me out on the inside at the same time. But the, the reference to the body here is telling us that there's an integration. You see, hypocrisy 
with hypocrisy, there's a contradiction. What's on the outside is contradicted by what's on the inside. So if I'm pretending to be pious, and inside I'm greedy and avarice and immoral, then there's a contradiction. What's in my heart contradicts the performance I put on for others. But in full devotion to God, there's integration. What the heart thinks and feels is exactly the activity of the body. And holiness and wholeness and healing come through integration. All right, so let us hold fast. So three things we're, we're being told to do here, and they all begin with let us, not let us, no, the salad of the New Testament. Uh, let us hold fast our confession of hope. A confession is a statement we make about our life in God. There are famous creeds, especially the apostolic and very close to it, the Nicene Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and so on. Perhaps you've heard that or grew up with it and can quote it by heart. Our confession of hope um, is specific uh, in the sense that we are saying something about our hope and how our lives are adjusted to it and, and, and by it. Hope, you know, I shouldn't even talk about it. My personality is so distant from hope um, that, I mean, it really is, I'm sure for the Lord, like reigning in a horse to, to get me to have a hope-filled thought. Um, I won't say about anything because I do have some hopes that are, are fairly secure in me. We read earlier that our hope is like an anchor that goes inside the curtain. That's the other reference to curtain, by the way, in Hebrews. Um, we're, we're anchored. Our hope is anchored, and, and we need to hang on to this. So I'll tell you, I'm going to try. I, I'm going that direction. You go there, too. That we're, we're going to always look at the horizon towards which we're moving, and we're going to look beyond the horizon. Our hope goes beyond the horizon. I, I mentioned to you last week uh, asking for prayers for my cousin, Chuck Fromm. Uh, and I mentioned that there, was, there were a couple of years where reflection met together physically uh, in his home, uh, both on Sunday mornings and then also midweek for our spiritual listening uh, to the scriptures. And uh, Chuck Fromm's uh, condition this year deteriorated rapidly and it was early last Monday morning that he left here to join his mom and dad in heaven, my dad in heaven. Uh, Chuck and I have lots of mutual friends who are there also. And the loss is great, but the hope is greater. So though we grieve, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
our grief is still grounded in hope. It, it's not that, that despair of, I'll never see him again, because we will see him again. So let's hold fast to our confession of hope. For he who promised is faithful. I love that. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians that, that's a favorite of mine. It's uh, in chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that wonderful? God is faithful who's called us into the fellowship, into this partnership of Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. It's one I go back to frequently to remind myself. God is faithful. You know, I can look at my own life and say, God has been faithful. And there are times when, I, when I was, for me, it was like, alas, you know, all, well, maybe not alas, but damn it, all is falling apart. Um, it, you know, everything is, is ruined. We're all going to end up on the street. But it never happened. Like, like Mark Twain, I've, I've suffered a thousand, a thousand misfortunes that never took place. And let us consider how to stir up one another. Oh, we can get each other stirred up, can't we? Um, but not like that. Our encounter with God is inseparable from our lives in community. We cannot love God without loving others. John in 1 John 4 says, well, how can you love God who you cannot see if you don't love your brothers and sisters who you can see? We love God in others. And through God, we love others. And through love others, the love of God, others love and accept us. When we started Reflection, um, it was my decision that we not refer to ourselves as a church. There's, there are plenty of churches in South Orange County. Um, and there are connotations that go with the word church and expectations. So people outside of church have ideas about it. I, I'm, I'm not interested in that. And people inside church have expectations about what is supposed to go on there. So I said, we're not going to call ourselves a church. I don't want anyone coming to me and saying, we don't have a children's ministry. We don't have a choir. Uh, we don't have a band. You know, fine, you know, we're not a church. We don't have to have any of those churchy things. Um, but I said, instead, we're going to refer to reflection as a spiritual community. What's a spiritual community? Well, it's actually what church means, the word church in the New Testament, the way it's used. It's a spiritual community. It's a group of people banded together in God <clears throat> around Jesus Christ who are devoted <clears throat> to following God and helping each other to follow God and helping each other with, with worldly things too, but especially for the purpose of continuing on in, in our lives with Jesus. So, so 
let's consider the spiritual community, the other people, men and women, children, whoever, in our spiritual community. In chapter 3, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews said, consider Jesus. Okay, so now he says, consider each other. And the word can mean to, to contemplate or to think about. It's a little bit more than that. Pay attention to. We are this spiritual community where Jesus is at the center and we're to consider each other and be curious how others are doing, listen to them, pay attention to them when they talk. And we're to stir them up. Um, so it's not just help meet their needs or share our faith together, uh, share favorite Bible passages and why they are meaningful to us. It's not just that. It's also bringing motivation, inspiration, things that move people. The Greek word that's translated stir up is the root word for our English word paroxysm. Have you ever heard of that, that word paroxysm? It's like a spasm, you know, a paroxysm of laughter or a paroxysm of pain. It can be a spasm in your body or it can be a stab at your heart, an emotional sudden pain. Well, here it means stimulate. And, and think of a, st a stimulating conversation. Uh, boy, I had stimulating conversations with my son, with my cousin Chuck Fromm. I mean, he, uh, he had a mind that wouldn't quit. I mean, for the longest time, just this wonderful, brilliant mind. And uh, he would share with me things that he was working on in pursuit of his doctorate. And it was so stimulating. Sometimes went way over my head, uh, but I nodded and pretended like I understood perfectly because he was my cousin. Uh, but a stimulating conversation with another believer. How do I do that? How do I stimulate someone else to to have faith? How do I stimulate them to want to exercise kindness or generosity? Well, I tell them a story. I think the best stories are our own, but I can tell them someone else's story uh, if I know that it's true, or a story from Scripture, but tell stories. Um, that's where a lot of um, our encouragement and our motivation comes from storytelling. Stir up, stimulate one another to love and good works. You know, I have questions about Christianity in America today. Um, things that some Christians say and that they say to each other, I wonder, what are they learning in their churches? There, there have been some Christians who have shut down good works um, a branch of fundamentalist in the 20th century began to uh, say, we don't have to help the poor or the homeless or alcoholics. 
if they don't know God, we're not responsible for them, and to go help them, to do anything for them, that's the social gospel. And social gospel was used as, uh, as a buzz phrase for someone who's left the path of Orthodox Christianity and has become modern or liberal. Those are two terms that were used a lot you know, to describe the bad guys. Um, and there's always something that's going to be new age or secular humanism or the uh, LGBTQ XYZ um, agenda. It's, it's always going to be something, but um, but they but they dispensed with good works, which to me, it, well, it's just disheartening and sad uh, because that enables them to justify their hostility their uh, insults, they're doing nothing for others rather than doing something Christ-like. Goodness is in our roots. Hannah Arendt, in her book, The Human Condition, says, goodness in an absolute sense, as distinguished from the good for or the excellent in Greek and Roman antiquity, became known in our civilization only with the rise of Christianity. Since then, we know of good works as one important variety of possible human action. The one activity taught by Jesus in word and deed is the activity of goodness. That's why I say we have goodness, good works in our roots. And you read through Paul's letters. Now, Paul says we're not saved by works. Uh, those are the works of the law. But in his letters, more than once, more than twice, more than three times, he sends us out to do good works in the world. And Jesus said, let your light so shine that others might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So God reveals himself and his love and his grace and mercy to others through our good works. So we want to stir up one another. Keep doing good works. Um, you, you gave some money to that homeless person. Good for you. God bless you. You, you sent some money to one at a time to provide pure water. Uh, you sent some money to partners to help uh, feed and clothe and house uh, Kurds in Syria or wherever they're working next. I mean, you got out there and you you dug a trench or you, you built a home or you did something. Uh, uh, let's just stir each other up, shall we? Uh, two more instructions and they have to do with the community, the spiritual community. Uh, a negative one and positive. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Uh, this does not mean go to church, right? It doesn't mean going to church. Uh, if spiritual community is what church strives for, is what church is all about, us caring for one another, ministering to, to one another, it doesn't matter if there's a pastor there really or not. If, if you are you know, successfully doing this, it always helps to have someone um, who knows the scripture so 
can keep us from becoming a cult or falling into heresy. But this doesn't mean going to church. So don't think, oh no, you know, I've, I, I've had this, this Tuesday morning Bible study and it's really been meeting my spiritual needs and I'm growing through it and I'm loving Jesus more and being a better Christian. Do I have to go to church on Sundays? No, you don't. Um, but it is necessary to have community life, a spiritual community of some sort where Jesus is at the center and and not neglect that it's you know we neglect it for different reasons uh we get really busy with something and we just can't go or we get sick we can't go we can't be at that community gathering but if we miss enough times that can become a habit and the writer says we don't want that habit and then on the positive side he says encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Boy, there's so much truth in that neurological truth and, and common sense. It's from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 24. Gracious words do so much for us if if you don't have such a poor self-image that you don't deflect compliments when people give them to you, a compliment can be a really wonderful thing. Um, oh, you did that really well. Or, oh, you have a beautiful voice. You should sing more. I mean, those kinds of compliments. Um, yeah, you know, we could possibly create a monster uh, if we tell someone that they have a beautiful voice and they really don't, and now they're singing loud all the time. But but that's not the point. The, I don't even know what the point is anymore. Um, it, it, I'm towards the end of my message, and uh, it's all unraveling, except this. That we can say words to each other that do encourage. You know, this, this is the same word for the Holy Spirit, uh, the encourager or the comforter, the one who comes to our side to assist. Um, so the Holy Spirit in us works through us. His work is the work that we do in encouraging each other. And all the more, as we see the day approaching, the urgency grows as, as the end, the, the final climax to history approaches. And we don't know what that is, but you know, in a time like we're living right now of, of pandemic and economic crises and turmoil, um, any sort of catastrophe creates the urgency. Let's be more solid in Jesus. Let's be more proactive with each other in, in turning each other's attention towards Jesus. You know, there's a way to express ourselves politically wherever you stand on, um, you know, on either side of the great divide. There's a way to, to live Jesus and you know, I'm hoping that, that every Christian who has political commitments has good biblical reason for it, not just proof text, um, but good, you know, sound biblical reason with the heart of Scripture, which is the heart of God and the heart of Jesus. But, um, but sometimes you just got to toss politics out the window because there's not going to be resolved between two people who are radically left or radically right. Um, 
there, you know, there, there can only be a change in the conversation. Let's talk about something else, uh, something where we are closer together and, and can ultimately work together. Because what's the Christian community if we can't work together? And what the heck is the Christian community if we can't transcend politics? You know, if I'm not going to talk to you anymore because of your politics, um, our emotions get way too much control of us when we get into some of these discussions. Be an encourager. Yesterday, when I was reading in First Thessalonians, I came across this. Paul told this church in Thessalonica, but since we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And when I read that, I realized how much I've been missing your faces. We've been torn away from each other, uh, maybe not as radically as Paul was torn away from the Thessalonians. I mean, he had to write this letter. It may have taken months for it to get from wherever he was to finally Thessalonica. And uh, we can just get on a cell phone, which I've been thinking about that too. It, it's such a misnomer to call it a cell phone. It's our cell computer, our cell internet access. It's just, it's everything that can be distracting from the time the sun rises to the time it sets. Anyway, um, I realized how much I missed your faces and, and that there are gifts that Christians can receive only through our interaction with each other as the Holy Spirit works those gifts in our lives. It's together that we pray. It's together that we listen to God. It is together that we draw near to God and that we encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good works. But what I'm going to leave you with is this. Come up close to God. There's, there's a dimension of life with God that can be ours only by experience. I cannot teach it to you. You cannot get it simply from reading the Bible unless in your reading you have that experience of coming close to God. It happens sometimes. Practice. Draw near intermissions. And what I mean by that is in the counter, you know, behind that person who's only supposed to have 15 items but actually has 30 or 40 items, breathe deep and have a draw near intermission. God's there. He's in the grocery store. It's funny, I've bumped into people before in the grocery store and they're like, what are you doing here? You know, like, uh, like people in my profession, whatever that may be, um, don't go shopping. Uh, God, what are you doing here in the grocery store? Oh, he's everywhere. And we can have a draw near intermission anytime. William Barclay says, in the morning as the day begins, in the evening as the day ends, Ever and again in the middle of the day's activities, we must turn aside, if only for a moment or a second, 
and enter into the presence of God. And you can do this easily today, right now, this week, anytime, anywhere, all the time, everywhere. You can do this with a deep, slow breath. And here he is, near. May the Lord bless you this week. May he draw near to you as you draw near to him. May the experience of God bring fullness to that dimension of your life in him that strengthens faith and hope and love. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoops.